example, I'm amazed at how many people have said, you know, sitting down at the table with my family over this last week when we've been shut in, we've never really connected in the way that we have over this last week. Hello and welcome to The Daily Helping with Dr. Richard Schuster. Food for the brain, knowledge from the experts, tools to win at life. I'm your host, Dr. Richard. Whoever you are, wherever you're from, and whatever you do, this is the show that is going to help you become the best version of yourself. Each episode, you will hear from some of the most amazing, talented, and successful people on the planet who followed their passions and strive to help others. Join our movement to get a million people each day to commit acts of kindness for others. Together, we're going to make the world a better place. Are you ready? Because it's time for your daily helping. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Daily Helping Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Richard, and we have an exceptional guest to share with you today. Ella Hunkins, author of Cracking the Leadership Code, Three Secrets to Building Strong Leaders, is a sought-after speaker, consultant, trainer, and coach over his 20-year career. He has led over 2,000 groups in 25 countries. His clients include Walmart, Pfizer, Citigroup, General Electric, State Farm, IBM, General Motors, and Microsoft. He has designed and facilitated seminars on numerous leadership topics, including team building, conflict management, communication, peak performance, innovation, engagement, and change. He also serves on the faculty of Duke Corporate Education and has published over 400 articles on leadership. I guess that would make you an expert to say the least. Welcome to this Daily Helping Podcast. It is awesome to have you here. It's awesome to be with you, Dr. Richard. Thanks. Oh, this is going to be good. This is going to be timely as well. So as you know, before I, before we get into the book and the meat of, of your expertise in leadership, I'm always curious as to people's why. So what was it that made you go down this road of really trying to understand at a core level leadership? I think what made me understand leadership is because I've really been... In, to me, leadership is all about people, right? I don't care what industry you're in, you're in the people business. And so to me, understanding people is something that has driven me ever since I can remember. Since I can... Like literally five years old, I remember wondering, why do people do what they do? And I think it has a lot to do with my fairly unusual upbringing. At the time, I didn't think it was unusual because I didn't know any better. It was just my life. So what was unusual was I, I, I was raised by a single mom and my grandmother. Now, that part isn't particularly unusual. Lots of people have probably had that experience. But my mother and my grandmother are both Holocaust survivors. My mother's from Belgium, and she was actually in hiding, separated from her family from the time she was seven until she was 10 for three years. And luckily, my grandmother, who also was in a concentration camp, survived, and they were reunited, and they were my primary parents. So as you can imagine... Their view of the world was profoundly changed through that experience, and it impacted how they raised me. And I noticed that life at home with my mom and my grandmother and my brother was very different than it was at school or with friends. So I think I was basically drawn to trying to figure out people to make sense of my own experience. And so that's really what got me started down this road. I ended up studying psychology when I was in college. I ended up going to drama school. I actually have a master's in fine arts as an actor from an acting conservatory. I was really just understanding human behavior and motivation. And since then, it's been working with people and, and leading first in schools and then in organizations and corporations, helping people to understand how do we unlock performance and understand that there's a science of high performance, but there's also this 
performing art of leadership. Because the fact is, we all play roles every day, whether that's husband, wife, mother, father, brother, colleague, coworker, boss, student. We play these roles every day. And the more that we can be conscious and intentional about what we want to get from those roles, I think the more effective we can be. I love that. I, I want to take a deeper dive into that. But before we do, let's circle back to your upbringing, because that's very interesting. Uh, when And the research shows that when people are in a crisis, you know, they, they usually do one of two things. They rise to the occasion and show tremendous courage, or they go the opposite way, and they become fearful of their environment, and that tends to stay with them. So I, I would love for you to speak to what the worldview that you were exposed to was like having been raised by two Holocaust survivors, and then how you reconciled that over time. Sure. So I would say it was a mixed bag in terms of some of the worldview beliefs that I certainly inherited and adopted. You know, like you said, some people rise and thrive to the occasion. It's interesting. My grandmother is one of five sisters. Only two survived the war. And the other one, my, my great aunt, Masha, also lived near us. And Masha was this bubbling, outgoing, joyous personality her whole life, whereas her sister, my grandmother, was really gloomy and depressed. And so I wonder what now, some of that might've been personality, but I think some of it was their response to that trauma. I know for me, some of what I got from my grandmother was the power of persistence and hard work and the sense that never take a day for granted because you never know you'll get that. So on the one hand, that was a very positive quality, this kind of perseverance. And I was a good student and I had an extremely strong work ethic, which has served me well. At the same time, she was also incredibly mistrustful of the world because of her experience. So I grew up literally being told things like, never share any more information than anyone ever asks of you because you never know what they're going to do with it. I would literally hear comments like that. So I know for, for me, I've had to learn how to expand my own ability to trust people. And so a lot of that was trial and error and also doing some personal work and growth on myself that I could develop and realizing we're not living in wartime. I don't have to behave as though I'm living in wartime. It's really interesting. And, you know, the research has shown, and it's kind of a new concept, like the tree. I didn't expect we were going to do a trauma episode, but the concept of transgenerational trauma and how this impacts people decades and decades and decades, even if they've never experienced the event themselves, how that can stay with people. So uh, I, I think that it's exceptional that you were able to identify those things and be able to have the ability to say, hey, you know, I'm not in 1942 Germany. I can trust people and, and move forward, which many people couldn't. So that's phenomenal. Um, I want to jump back, though, to what we were talking about from a leadership standpoint, which is, of course, the focus of this, this episode and your book. So as you got into the world and you started, you know, you have a 20-year career and you've, you've led over 2,000 of these groups in many, many countries and with some of the biggest corporations in the world. What were some of the common threads that you saw, both in terms of strengths, but in terms of challenges from a leadership standpoint? Great question, Dr. Richard. So from my point of view, you know, there are definitely patterns of behavior that show up both with successful leaders and med well, I call mediocre leaders, right? The fact is, and the interesting thing about mediocre leaders is I've yet to meet a single leader who wakes up in the morning and says, you know what, today I'm going to be mediocre. Like, so no one intends that. So clearly that's in our blind spot. And some of the patterns particularly that I see is so many leaders are still using a playbook that is dated back to the beginnings of the Industrial Revolution. 
this idea of I'm in charge. It's my job to tell you what to do. I'm going to manage this process and control you and tell you. And if there are things that are wrong, I'm going to fix them. That that belief mindset is so pervasive in so many people because they have the title. And oftentimes they got the title because they were good at the job itself. They were good individual contributors. So now they've been promoted to other people who do that. And they feel this need to be the fixer. And in my book, I write about this guy named Matt, who was a, he is a district manager for a fast food franchise. And the company, they have 100 different districts. And when I met Matt, he was the number one highest ranked district manager in the company. And I said, so Matt, how'd you get to be number one? Have you always been such a strong performer? He said, no. When I started 20 years ago at this, I was like number 84 on this list. And I said, so what shifted for you? And what he's described, which is what I think is a really useful distinction, Matt said, when I started, I was this fixer. I thought my job was to go in and tell people what to do. And I'd get this list of what wasn't working. And I'd just show up and just push, tell, do this. And people would literally come into the different restaurants. This is fast food, right? They'd come in the restaurants. He wouldn't even know their names before they got hired and got fired or, or quit. And what he realized is that people didn't want a fixer. People wanted a leader. And he realized the first thing he needed to start doing is recognize these weren't some worker bees, cogs in a machine, which is, by the way, where organizational leadership started with this idea that people were literally like oxen, just mindless beasts, just doing manual labor. So he realized, Matt said, I can't look at people like worker bees. They're people with lives and families and feelings and I have to start to learn how to connect with them and empathize with them and build relationships based on trust with them. And instead of telling them what's wrong is ask them because they, they know it already. And so I stopped being this directive leader and started becoming this facilitative leader. And so to me, I think that's a huge difference between the leaders that really flounder and the ones that thrive is that general mindset of, do you think that your job is to be in charge or do you see your job as to serve the people who are in your charge? Very, very interesting. So regarding cracking the leadership code, was there a point in time where you just had this aha moment and said, I need to write a book? Or you know, was this something that you, know, you had had kind of in your mind for years and years and just finally got the itch to put it on paper? Yeah. So like probably many people, I've wanted to write for literally 25 years. And I thought about it for years and years. And I didn't do anything about it. I was like, oh, I have to write a book. And I kept feeling like days were going by. And I had this great mentor once. And he gave me this profound piece of wisdom. He said, Alain, writers write. I went, oh, right. Yeah. It's a skill. It's a practice. So instead of giving myself this giant mountain to climb, like I have to write a book, I said, great, I'll start a blog. And so in 2011, I started a blog because I was having these experiences every week working with clients and stories would come out. So I would take these notes. So the notes turned into blog posts. And I just started capturing these blog posts. And then the first couple of years, I got to say the blog posts, they just sucked. I mean, I was <laughs> writing on every single topic all over the place. Sometimes they were 5,000 words. Sometimes they were 200 words. I really didn't have a theme. But it took me a while to find my voice. And two years later, I committed to posting every week. I used to post on Saturdays. And I consistently started that in 2013. And I continued that through 2016. So in a few years, I had hundreds and hundreds of posts. And I could go back through those posts. And I started looking for common themes. And those themes became the chapters and the parts of the book. And that's how this whole theme of the book... So the, the subtitle is Three Secrets to Building Strong Leaders. And those three secrets are connection, communication, 
and collaboration because I found I had posts and stories about each of those themes. And the fact is, the way we learn best is through stories. So the book is this, is this, is this blend of that there's research because you need to have the research and the data to support it, but then having stories and then taking the stories and then having very specific practical examples because what do I do with a theory? I, I don't know what to do with that tomorrow. Whereas if I say here, like I'll give you an example. You know, in the book, we write about leadership credibility and the importance of building our credibility. Well, a simple thing that any of us can do to be more credible, show up on time. And I go into the details of that. But basically, that's a really simple thing that anyone can take and do. It's like, great, I can make it a practice and dedicate a habit to showing up on time. So I really get down to that level of specificity and in some ways, simplicity. The book is filled with those kind of tools, tips, and techniques that I've either learned or stolen from others along the way. Hey guys, Dr. Richard here. For the past seven years, I've been privileged to bring you incredible guests who are changing the world and can help you become the best version of yourself. I'm really excited to share with you a new quiz that I created based on my clinical training that will curate for you a custom list of my top episodes and actionable strategies to help you wherever you are on your journey. All you need to do is go to drrichardschuster.com to take it, and it's 100% free. You'll be taking the next step on the journey to unlocking the power of you, and I can't wait to see where you'll go. All right, so we've got connection, communication, collaboration. Take take us through kind of at a high level, and then you know I, I would love for you to share a story with, with for each of those because I know that you know, stories is what this book is about. Take us through those because those are the the three. It sounds like those are the three secrets to building. Those are the three secrets. Yes. Yeah, so let, let's, sure. let's 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 dive in. Let's start with connection. So I'll tell you a story about a guy named Glenn. So I was working with Glenn and about twenty of his colleagues, and we were discussing the subject of belief. And, you know, I was talking with them about the fact that most of us think that beliefs, there are these things that are rock solid. You know, if we believe something, we have a certainty about it, like that it won't change. So I had been talking with them about beliefs and I asked them, so think about it though. You think beliefs in the moment, they're rock solid certain, but over time they can change. So think in your life, what's something that you once believed that you no longer believe? Now, I'd asked that question to many groups many times before. And of course, the common answers I get to that are Santa Claus, right? The tooth fairy, right? Common thing. So I'm expecting the group to give me an answer like that. But this guy, Glenn, this day totally surprises me. He says, oh yeah, something I once believed I no longer believed? Well, that's easy. I never really liked people a whole lot. <laughs> wait, wait, what, what are you talking about? Like, where's this guy going? And he continued and I said, yeah, you know, I guess you could call me a curmudgeon. And you know, at work, I thought my job was just to tell people what to do and their job was to shut up and do it. Now, at this point, I think the day is about to go completely off the rails. But suddenly Glenn shifted. He said, yeah, see, all that changed two years ago. You see, my wife was diagnosed with stage four breast cancer. And suddenly out of the woodwork, people just started showing up and helping, you know, making meals, doing pickups and drop-offs. It completely restored my faith in humanity. And at work, I realized that the people that I work with had families too, and they had lives too. So I started asking them about themselves and talking with them instead of at them. I'd like to think I'm not the same leader I used to be. So the secret sauce that transformed Glenn was first, it was empathy. The fact that first he received it and then he started giving it. So in the book, we talk about empathy being this primary leadership skill, which is just helping people understand that you see their perspective and you know how they feel. 
Now, I think particularly in this age of COVID and the pandemic, we're seeing this outpouring of understanding of empathy that we're all in some ways literally in the same boat, right? We're all shut in at home, making our best of a terrible situation. And so as I think about Glenn's story and about the power of empathy, I think we can all recognize that it's such a useful skill for leaders to have because at its core, leadership is a relationship between leader and follower. And it's a choice that we both make to choose to lead and choose to follow. And while I think we all understand it in theory, like, yeah, I get it, empathy, we should do that. When we're in the middle of our day-to-day busy lives, it's easy for empathy to get short shrift. So an example of that is the fact is it takes time to listen to someone's story sometimes. And if we're all running and gunning and just so busy between our meetings and emails and got to go, too much to do, don't have time, it gets short shrift. And so, for example, I'm amazed at how many people have said, you know, sitting down at the table with my family over this last week when we've been shut in, we've never really connected in the way that we have over this last week. So, so I get into empathy. So that's an example of empathy uh, and how empathy is a part of connection. So that's connection. Then we get into communication and we look at some of the big barriers to communication. You know, about 80% of leaders say the number one challenge they have at work are communication-related issues. And so again, everyone means to communicate well, but it's really challenging. And uh, George Bernard Shaw had a great quote. He said, the greatest, the greatest challenge with communication, I'll say that again, the greatest challenge with communication is the illusion that it has taken place, right? And so um, there's, a, there's a thing that psychologists call the projection bias, which is basically that you unconsciously assume that other people have the same thoughts and feelings that you do. So if you or any of the listeners here have ever had the experience of getting frustrated with somebody because they go, well, I sent the email, they should know what to do, right? It's because we're assuming because it was clear in our minds that it's clear in somebody else's. And so an example of a simple technique that anyone can use to overcome that projection bias is what I call asking for a receipt in conversation. Because let's face it, the goal of communication isn't to communicate, it's to create understanding. And so there's a great example of the power of asking for a receipt that comes from the fast food industry. So actually back in the 1980s, when they just started bringing drive throughs into all the fast food restaurants, there were huge amounts of mistakes. So people would order through the intercom and they'd drive up to the window and then they'd pick up their food and be filled with mistakes. And that went on for a long time. And then suddenly those drive through mistake rates just started to plummet. And it wasn't some newfangled technology that did that. It was really simple. So the employees just literally would repeat the order back to someone after they ordered it to make sure they got it right, confirming that they had understanding. So it's interesting if you think how many of us meet, whether it's at work or at home, we have meetings with other people when we say, hey, let's do this. And we assume that the other person knows what this is, and we don't take the time to confirm. So asking for a receipt is a very easy way for us to build up our effectiveness of communication. And then there's the last piece, which is collaboration. And the fact is, as leaders in life and at work, we can't force anyone else to be motivated, right? Because trying to make someone else be motivated is going back to the old command and control playbook. So what we have to recognize is what we want to do instead is create an environment or conditions where motivation is most likely to happen. And in the book, I talk about four 
needs that humans have in order to collaborate their best. And those needs are safety, energy, purpose, and ownership. And I'll just give you a really simple example that any of us could do just to help people's need for energy. And I'm sure people are experiencing this being cooped up at home. But uh, it's really easy. Many of us have the experience of being in a, in a either face-to-face meeting or on a conference call or a Zoom call, one of these calls, and they go on for two hours or sometimes three hours. Right? We got all this work to do. Let's have this two-hour meeting. And you know, somewhere around the 90-minute spots, everyone is completely flaking out, right? Your attention is distracted. You're getting hungry, angry, tired, cranky. One of those things is going on. So a simple thing that we can do is, I call it the 90-minute rule. Just take a break. Just realize, biologically, we're not wired to be machines. We need breaks. We need to stand up, go outside, get some fresh air, do something different, change it up, because otherwise, we can't possibly focus, even though we want to. So there's, again, a simple example of a simple tool that we can use to collaborate more effectively. So the book covers connection, communication, collaboration, and obviously dives deeper into all these levels. But I just wanted to give a little taste of of just simple, practical things because this should be simple and practical because if it's not simple and practical, we're not going to do it. So there's a little overview for you. Thank you. Thank you for that. That was wonderful. And as I'm hearing you describe these things, and and certainly this is timely, there's uh, pretty much all of us listening to this are going to be locked up in our homes. As we're doing that, it, it seems like a lot of these principles are translatable into the family life. Completely. Because let's face it, we are all... When I describe leadership, I always say leadership isn't about your job title. It's about a state of being. And leadership to me is about mobilizing either yourself and or with others to get people to willingly work towards a shared purpose. So for a lot of us right now, we have to lead our families because like, look, we're all sheltered in, we're hunkered in the bunker for the next, who knows, four, six, 12, who knows how long this will go on. How can we make the best out of this situation, right? Because I know some people are I had this conversation with a colleague last week where they sat down with their family and they said, hey, you know, we have two choices here. We can sit here and talk about how are we going to cope just to make it through or what are we going to do to make the best of the situation? And I think this is an opportunity for all of us to reframe how we can lead and how we can be resilient, both with ourselves and with, our, with the people that we're cloistered in with, with our families, if that's the case. That's absolutely right. And, I, and I'm curious... Because you've been doing this for 20 years, so you've you've got some data from 9-11 and there's been a number of conflicts. Where do you see leadership pivoting based on what's going on in the world right now? What I see leadership pivoting, it's amazing. I was talking to my next door neighbor who works in the shipping industry. And he was telling me how so many things that were just sacred cows last week, literally last week. So for example, one thing they've always needed was a printed receipt of a bill of goods before they could release something in the shipping industry. Well, guess what? In a course of two days, what was sacred, we have to have this printed bill of goods, they now have decided we can do this electronically. You know, they say necessity is the mother of invention, right? And so it's, I think what's so interesting is there's so many people who've said, oh, we can't have people working from home this much. This is, so I think one of the things that's going to come out of this entire, on the tail end of this pandemic is just realizing that people can be much more autonomous and independent and responsible than we give them credit for. And I think that's going to shift leadership where we have to recognize that it's leadership as a practice is going to take a giant leap forward from the sense of the need to micromanage and control and moving much more to the sense of 
My role is to facilitate and help others. So I think that's a big thing that's going to change. So we bring it back to the facilitative leadership versus directive leadership. Yeah. Do you think that's going to be, and I know this is just prognostication, do you think that's going to be a sea change that lasts for a while or once everybody gets back into their cubicles, we're going to kind of see the pendulum shift back to the way it was? No, I think, you know, I think there's going to be a sea change to the point of view of, you know, business tends to always lag behind science. I mean, so many of the things that were kind of known well in science years ago, I'll give you an example, like 10 or 15 years ago, if you brought up the idea of mindfulness in a workplace context, people would laugh at you like mindfulness, meditation, like what, what are you nuts? That's so common and mainstream now. So I think that once we see not just the science, but also the business case of, you know, if we allow people to, and I know it's allow, right? That the compliance word in there. Um, if, we, if we have people work from home, give them the freedom, give more autonomy, if we move more towards a results-oriented work environment instead of an activity-based work environment, because let's face it, why do we work nine to five? It's very much of a leftover from the industrial age. Like, are you actually productive between 9 a.m. and 5 p.m.? I realize that we have to create structure, but I think we're going to see more and more organizations being more flexible and recognizing that, you know what? We didn't plan this crisis, but when it came, people rose to the occasion. So you're going to see a lot of holdover from this as we hopefully go back to some semblance of normalcy in society. Well, this has been phenomenal, and I, and I, and I do hope you're right. I hope that you know, when this is when this is over and we do return to normalcy, that a lot of the lessons learned from that are taken from an organizational leadership standpoint. And there are some permanent changes that really help employees better live the lives they should be living and not just doing things the way they they started them in the 1800s when they, everybody was a factory worker. But uh, this has been really an exceptional interview, and I'm grateful you came on the show and shared all of your wisdom with us. As you know, I wrap up every episode by asking my guests a single question, and that is, what is your biggest helping? The single most important piece of information you'd like somebody to walk away with after hearing our conversation today? The thing that is the biggest helping is if you want to grow as a leader, find people that will give you honest feedback about how you show up. From my perspective, there's nothing that will accelerate your leadership growth more than honest, timely feedback from someone else. That is, if you take it and then act on it. So I would say, seek out feedback because if we're not growing, we're just not advancing and feedback is the catalyst to growth. I love that. Tell us where people can find out about you online and get their hands on Cracking the Leadership Code. Great. Well, you can find Cracking the Leadership Code if you go to www.crackingtheleadershipcode.com. You can learn all about the book. You can actually download chapter one right there while you're checking it out. And that'll have links to my webpage, which is alainhunkins.com, A-L-A-I-N-H-U-N-K-I-N-S.com. And also feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn. That's where I do most of my social media. Outstanding. And for those of you, well, you're not at the gym. I usually say for those of you at the gym or in the car, and you're probably doing neither. Uh, we've got you covered if you're out. Regardless, everything related to cracking the leadership code is going to be available in the show notes for this episode of dailyhelping.com, as well as in the Daily Helping app available in iTunes and Google Play. Well, this has been outstanding. Can't wait to read the book. Thank you so much for coming on the show. It was a great conversation. Oh, it's been a pleasure, Dr. Richard. Thank you so much. 
Absolutely. And I want to thank each and every one of you as well who tuned into this. If you like what you heard, go subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review because this is what helps other people find the show. But most importantly, go do something nice for somebody else. And I know that we're locked in our homes and so we're not out in the stores, but in an online world, there's a way just to let people know that you care about them people that maybe you haven't checked in with in a while because that's so important right now. Do something nice for somebody else. Post in your social media feeds using the hashtag MyDailyHelping. Do it right now because the happiest people are those that help others. 